The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. Hello and welcome to the Market Pulse podcast and I am your host Dion and this is episode 7, Encouraged but Not Complacent which were the words echoed by federal opposition leader Anthony Albanese yesterday in regards to coronavirus with very similar messages coming from Scott Morrison and Greg Hunt as there does appear to be some light at the end of the tunnel and some good news with the potential flattening of the curve but it's obviously not all over yet and I'm sure you're all spending your Easter weekend at home, isolated, quarantined, whatever it is uh, but thank you for tuning in this week. If you do have a question for the show, uh, as always, you can email marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter handle, which is marketpulsepod. But let's kick it off. We'll look at how the markets did this week, and then we'll go into a discussion, talk a bit about, about some of the highlights of the week. I'm also going to touch on those US unemployment figures, which we like to look at, some of the information around dividends, especially from the banks. We saw a statement from APRA regarding that this week and Treasury Wine Estate as well, which is mulling, pardon the pun, a uh, demerger of its famous Penfolds brand. And we've also got a listener question at the very end, so we'll get to that in just a moment. So the ASX 200 uh, was up 6.3% this week, so a relatively good week again, for the, for the Australian stock market. Uh, the, the US fared quite well as well. So that was up 12.1%, the, sorry, the S&P 500 over in the US. And the NASDAQ 100 was up 10.59%. So again, another really interesting week on the markets. Just observing behavior, it almost feels like there are really two sides of the thinking around financial markets at the moment. And, and that is one being that the damage isn't finished and you know we're in for further hurt and I guess the other side is thinking that the bulk of the damage is done and hopefully we can start to recover from here because there are certainly some positive signs overall although it is still quite bad overall in terms of the global cases so COVID-19 as of recording there's about 1.7 million worldwide cases there are a hundred thousand deaths uh, Italy still has the most, but the United States is looking like they're just about to pass that. Uh, and it, they might have by the time that you listen to this. And in terms of thinking about the market in regards to whether the damage is all done or there's more to come, I'm not sure who is right, to be honest. I, I told you all in the podcast last week that I still have uh, healthy skeptic- skepticism towards any notion, I guess, that we're through the worst of it and that's just that's just my personal opinion i can't really tell you you know whether it's going to go further down or remain flat i'm not i'm not sure so that's something to look out for and to be honest no one can tell you that as well my worry i guess my concern where that comes from is that maybe investors aren't thinking enough about the other side of this so what happens after all this what's the landscape like when this is over or at least settling down how I perceive the market to be behaving right now is that it's it's probably a little bit to do with the fact that it appears Australia is doing better than other countries, especially 
other major Western countries such as the US and the UK in terms of handling the virus. And there appears to be a bit of optimism this week and, and a little bit last week surrounding our fortunes as well as, uh, I guess, a path to normalization. Although if you listen to state leaders and federal leaders, they're definitely trying to say that, yes, whilst there are some good news, we still need to uh, stay vigilant in our efforts to social distance. And I'll throw an asterisk on that and say that if I did click my fingers and Australia was cured of COVID-19 tomorrow, that doesn't mean that the rest of the world is ready to go back to normal either. And, you know, things like such as the travel sector, see a scenario that that's going to recover on the domestic front before it recovers internationally. Like if, if Australia does start to get a hold of this, um, that obviously being a great thing and people start to resume somewhat of a normal life, even though there isn't a vaccine just yet, you know, we're still not going to be rushing overseas to Europe for the summer holidays or anything like that. At least that's how I think. As for cruises, I mean, it's tough to think how they're going to look after this at all, uh, both from a business and and popularity point of view. I'm, I'm slightly biased because I don't personally understand their appeal as a holiday, what do you call it, destination? No, I don't know what you call it, but as a holiday idea. But I have to imagine their branding, so to speak, is probably permanently damaged after this. We'll see. People have short memories, so who knows? The guys over at the money cafe podcast which is uh, run by james kirby who's a writer for the australian and alan cola they toyed with the idea about whether the current interest rate environment has actually helped the australian market at the moment because there's no real you know there's no real alternative to put your money so during the gfc for example interest rates were in a very very different phase you know one could still yield about four percent in a cash account with your local bank meaning that if worse comes to worse, you, you you could have just pulled your money out of investments and, and thrown it in the bank and, and actually received something at least half decent back for it. Hang on, I'm just going to quickly pause and have a look at the RBA website. So they so on the 3rd of September 2008, the cash rate was 7.25%. They dropped it by 0.25% or 25 basis points if you want to sound fancy like me. Uh, a month later, they dropped it by 1% then another 0.75%. To cut a long story short, they went from 7.25% to 3% between September 2008 and May 2009. So they had a lot of room, so to speak, to bring those rates down. But even then, you could still, like I said, get around that 4% in your local bank. But the scenario now is very different. So if you have just, just a quick check on Suncorp's website, I can see that 12-month turn deposit for 1.7. Uh, maybe maybe with some of those neobanks, you can get a bit closer to 2% perhaps, but, but that's about as good as it gets in this environment with the rates being so low. I mean, the other thing you can do is withdraw it and shove it under a mattress, bury it in the backyard in a tin. I'm not sure if anyone saw the news from the RBA this week, but they had a report in it. They noted an elevated over-the-cash uh, withdrawals, sorry, Elevated over-the-counter cash withdrawals during the second half of March in Australia. So some people probably are doing that. Circling back to why I mentioned the, the Money Cafe podcast is that, yeah, they were referencing the idea that perhaps there are more investors in the market right now or more people willing to, say, put some money in the market right now compared to back then um, because it's the only place to find some income yield through the dividends. 
even if those dividends are reduced or cut altogether, maybe people are willing to take the risk to try and get at least some income uh, that way. As I mentioned at the top, the, the US markets had a very positive week. I think the headline <laughs> summed it up for me though, or at least in the way that my thinking is about this all is, I've got it here, so 16 million people just got laid off, but US stocks had their best week in 45 years. I mean, isn't that a uh, clash of thinking there? If you've been listening to my podcast for the past couple of weeks, you'll, you'll know we've been following this particular indicator, which is first-time unemployment claims in the US. So not, not Australia, this is in the US. And a couple of weeks ago, it spiked up. It was around 3.3 million. And last week, it came in at about 6.7 million. And this week, it was pretty much the same again, so 6.6 million. Absolutely insane numbers of unemployment. Again, just the, the fact that you just hit stop on an economy, these are the kind of things that can happen. And I noted this, there was a LinkedIn post by Mohammed El Arian, who's, you see him on CNBC in the US and he's Allianz chief economic advisor. And he, he said that he, he can't, stop, can't stop thinking, really worried about the loss of jobs due to coronavirus. The 16.8 million lost jobs, so that's the, the total so far in the last three weeks, equals about 10% of the labor force also, or the peak unemployment rate during the Great Recession. And all this comes with enormous pain and suffering and the risks of a deeper opioid crisis, domestic violence, etc. That last point is something that I'm sure some people are making uh, noise about, but it definitely isn't the main headlines as the focus is all, almost entirely on economic and public health risks or fallout to, to do with the COVID-19 crisis. It reminded me of a, a book I read last year. It was recommended by a former colleague and friend. It was called... Everybody Lies, What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And it's written by a guy called Seth Stevens Davidowitz. He's an economist and a data scientist. And the book is a really good insight into basically how Google data can help to predict trends and I guess what it says about us as humans and the kind of stuff that we, we do ask Google about. But anyway, he had a segment about the global financial crisis and that a common social concern at the time was child abuse uh, due to increased unemployment from parents and uh, financial, financial stress, I guess, on families. And the, the author notes how during the GFC, Child Protective Services were saying how that they actually had seen reduced reports of child abuse. So on face value, it seemed that the worries of increased abuse during financial stress or at a recession were unfounded. But the author, Seth, he did his own research into the data trends and could see that search phrases such as my mum hit me or my dad beat me actually did shoot up over this time very significantly and it was actually in line with the rise of unemployment at the time. So that suggests that the abuse, so reporting, sorry, it suggests that reporting of a child abuse declined but the abuse itself did not decline. Anyway, it's, that last part's not really market related but it's something that stuck with me in a sobering thought nonetheless. Moving on to dividends, and I've also explained a little bit around what dividends are in past podcasts, but this week, APRA, which is the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, a bit of a mouthful, it's a financial services regulator. It came out with a statement to deposits-taking institutions, so basically banks and insurers, and they kind of just said, yeah, I mean, we don't really want you paying dividends. Well, their actual official statement was the, that APRA expects that banks and insurers 
will seriously consider deferring decisions on the appropriate level of dividends until the outlook is clearer. However, where a board is confident that they're able to approve a dividend before this on the basis of robust stress testing results that have been discussed with APRA, this should nevertheless be at a materially reduced level. So why is this happening? So why, why would APRA come out and be very concerned about the health of the banks at the moment? So one reason is obviously that there is, I guess, some increased pressure on banks right now as customers who are eligible for this might be taking up loan deferrals uh, due to things like job loss, etc. I guess another scary thing worth observing are investment properties that are normally used for Airbnb. I spoke to a, a resident in my area who has had you know months worth of bookings that are in place just all canceling him over the next coming months for obvious reasons, as you can imagine. But he actually relies on that income to actually pay the mortgage on that property. So that's kind of a bit scary to think about. There was also an article in the AFR about warnings from the Reserve Bank of Australia about problems with commercial property and and just banks holding loans in that in that market. I guess you have to imagine that lending in commercial markets for for things like retail trade, you know, travel, accommodation, food services would be looking really ugly at the moment because effectively they've lost all their customers and business. You, you know, unless you're Woolies or Coles right now. It's not, the, it's not the best time to be in the food business. So yeah, APRA, they basically came out, they said that they want the banks to be able to support struggling customers first and that should be their priority instead of paying out dividends to shareholders. They obviously want to ensure that banks are in a place in Australia to absorb you know, bad debts you know, should they escalate due to the current economic landscape. So APRA actually sent this request out on Wednesday this week and, and really the first hit went to BOQ because they happened to be releasing their earnings for the first half uh, up until February and as far as I've heard, they had to scramble and change their plans and, and defer their their dividend. So they had sort of planned to, to announce an interim dividend but they had to defer it. Market reaction was understandably negative so the, the banks all fell that day as... I guess investors started to realize that they might not be getting any dividends this year from any of their bank shares. That idea is certainly backed by analysts. So UBS cite that they expect ANZ and NAB and Westpac to follow suit with BOQ and pay no dividends when they announce their half-year results to the market over the coming weeks. CBA is a lucky one. So if you're a shareholder of CBA, they, they managed to get the dividends in. They paid a $2 dividend on the 31st of March, so just before this APRA letter has come out this week. It's worth watching. I mean, it sucks for investors. I think better to be safe than sorry during a period like this. If that does mean losing a little bit of income right now, that's, I'd, if you're looking at the long term, that's a small price to pay, really. All right, quick, quick break to, to snack on an Easter egg and have a coffee. So Treasury Wine Estate was also in the news this week. Not a brand that is or at least in my opinion, super recognizable. It's the brands underneath their umbrella that consumers will likely recognize. So Treasury Wine Estate uh, own Penfolds, Wolf Blouse, 19 Crimes, Squealing Pig, Pepper Jack. So the list goes on. So you walk into any, any wine shop or bottle shop and you'll find a brand that Treasury Wine Estate owns. So they're one of those ASX companies who uh, over the last few years in a similar vein to A2 Milk Company, they have very, very much benefited from 
a growing Chinese appetite for Australian products that coming from the growing Chinese middle class. So for some overall perspective on wine exports for Australia, I'm referencing some data here that, that actually is a little bit old, unfortunately. So it was released in October 2019 and it was a, it was a summary for that year. I found this report through the Comsec Market Insights. Some key points. So at, at that time of the report, they found that the 12 months leading up to September 2019, Aussie wine exports were worth about $2.89 billion and China was the fastest growing market and was alone worth $1.25 billion. So by far the biggest appetite for our wines. And that's echoed by Wine Australia. So if you go on their website, they cite China as Australia's largest wine export market. And they and they say that China accounts for over a third of, of export of wine value in the last financial year. So this week, Treasury Wine Estates announced it's looking at a demerger actually of their iconic Penfolds brand. And they, they want to demerge it onto the ASX as its own separately listed company. So just to highlight what that means, or at least what the impact that Penfolds has on the overall Treasury Wine Estate uh, company, it it, do, it only accounts for I believe the figure I saw was ten percent of wine volume in terms of the amount of wine volume they sell, but it accounts for about half of their entire profits. So the Penfolds brand actually operates on quite high margins, and it's you know positioned as a premium wine. And it can certainly um, certainly I guess be attributed to the fact that it does uh, account for such a large amount of their overall profits. So pre uh, pre coronavirus, the estimated valuation for Penfolds on its own is almost about ten billion dollars. But I mean, that's worth one valuation from the Bank of America. I I, I said it. I I caveated that with a pre coronavirus valuation because, as you can imagine, Treasury United States have seen you know material impacts due to you know, decreased Chinese consumption, let alone consumption overall in the world because of the virus. You know, as you can imagine, maybe people's ability or appetite, so to speak, to shell out some money for a premium wine bottle at the moment um, is probably lesser. Although then again, like, which is a kind of disturbing trend, it seems like alcohol consumption is up because people are bored at home. It's likely that if you're a shareholder of Treasury Wine Estate and this goes ahead, uh, you'll you'll actually retain your Treasury Wine Estate shares, of course. They, they will lose some value because they're technically selling an asset that's underneath them, so something that makes them money. But you'll receive a share in the new standalone Penfolds business. And that's not confirmed yet, sorry, but those, those details will probably come out a little bit later when they start to formalize this. But that's basically how these kind of things work in a demerger. And just to be clear, demerger on the... Australian Stock Exchange is, is different to an IPO. So an IPO is an, an initial public offering. That's when a, a company comes to the Australian stock market for the first time and it looks to raise capital and and people can uh, buy into the IPO. And that, that's different to a demerger because during a demerger, the, that company, so Penfolds in this instance, they're not looking to raise more money or something. It's just a separation of the Penfolds business from Treasury Wine Estates. A really easy example actually is is West Farmers. So they're a huge stock. They've been around for <laughs> probably a probably hundred years. I don't even know, but they're a, they're a giant conglomerate on the ASX and they own the likes of, of Bunnings and Officeworks and Kmart, Target and a bunch of other stuff, even some mining interests. So West Farmers used to own Coles, but in 2018, they actually sold Coles. 
well, the way they did that, they listed it on the stock market as its own company. And so it's ASX code now is COL Coal. Now, what happened at the time, if you were a West Farmer's shareholder, you did see your share price drop, but it kind of dropped in the same value as the share in coals that you received as part of the sale, if that makes sense. So circling back to Treasury Wine Estates, and as to why this is going ahead, at least the note from the company seems to be about you know, letting these two separate companies work on their own long-term strategic plans. You know, it may be that Penfolds is better off without having to answer to the overall TWE umbrella. Generally speaking, the advantages to a demerger, in this case, it could be that Penfolds can actually focus on themselves and vice versa. So TWE can focus on their other brands. There are some negatives, of course. So sometimes in a demerger, the parent company can throw in you know, unwanted stuff, maybe unwanted debt or underperforming assets into the into the spin-off company. Also, sometimes the collaboration between a, a parent company and, and the, the chunk that they actually spin off are not always that obvious. You know, it's not like sometimes they're just not tangible in the way that things on a balance sheet or, or the financials of a company truly are. And it's only after the separation that that, that can become apparent. I think Penfolds as a brand is self-sufficient. It's not like it relies on treasury wine estate or, or something like that for people to recognize what it is it's its own thing right and it doesn't rely on the other the wine labels under the treasury wine estate umbrella you know to help it with its promotion quick check on the share price for twe it's so treasury wine estate so it's ten dollars 63 right now but it's you know it's actually fallen from highs of you know around the 19 dollar mark pre-coronavirus I think the short term for a company like Treasury Wine Estate is a little bit tough and that's certainly reflected by analysts from both City and JP Morgan who they've cut their earnings forecasts for this company for this year and that, that's because of what we were talking about before around a bit of reduced spending and reduced appetite, especially for maybe more premium products. You know, the current environment doesn't leave too much to be desired in terms of discretionary spending, especially on like a really expensive bottle of Penfolds, for example. And it looks like the Chinese consumption market will be weaker also. I'm not a shareholder in TWE at all. I, I never have been. I've, I have watched it though. I think if you're one of those people that picked it up in March between the sort of $8 to $10 band, then you're ideally onto a good thing. And that's especially if you're holding it for the long term. All right, it's actually been a quite a long podcast this week. I had a lot to go through. We, we actually have a listener question, which I, it did come through last week. I mentioned that, but... I was running out of time. I was <laughs> working on university assignments. So this listener question comes from Pete, or so Peter from New South Wales in Sydney. So my question is, my friend and I are looking at opportunities in the market and want to buy and hold for at least 20 years. So super, super long term. The idea of ETFs came up and I was wondering how you decide which ones to choose when you buy. I also would like to know which are the best platforms uh, for buying ETFs. And doesn't make a difference in the end product. Thank you for the question, Peter. It's a good question. I'll, I'll answer that last bit about the platform first, as that's actually quite an easy question to answer. In terms of platform, it doesn't really matter so much. It, it does a little bit, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and break this down simply. So platforms out there that allow you to buy shares or ETFs, they, they all charge their own individual fees. So I'm not going to go through all the other, all the platforms out there and try and work out all the different fees. So that's obviously something you need to consider when you do invest. And it's also good to consider that based on how often you're going to invest. So if you're someone that's, uh, say, going to throw 
maybe a couple thousand dollars into the market once or twice a year versus someone who's going to be throwing in a little bit every month. Maybe the person who's doing it every month needs to be much more wary of fees because they're, they're doing it more often, whereas the person that, that's doing it on a, a more casual basis or maybe just a couple times a year, it might not matter as much. But basically, to answer your question about the platform, it doesn't matter about the end product. So so uh, you could you could uh, use Comsec, for example, or uh, say Macquarie uh, Share Investing or Westpac have a platform or NabTrade, for example, a lot of those big banks all have a platform. And if you buy the ETF, say on NabTrade, and you also bought it on Comsec, no, there's no material difference at the end of that. It's the same ETF, you're generally speaking out of the same rights. So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It's going to come down to a personal preference and it is the same investment product, if that makes sense. So if you're researching ETFs right now, Peter, you probably see that they're all showing negative year-to-date returns and that's for for relatively obvious reasons because they're, a lot of the times they're investing in shares and, and specific indices around the world. It's important to clarify what actually an index fund is compared to say an ETF. So, so think of it this way, an index fund is an ETF, but not all ETFs are index funds, if that makes sense. So basically there, there are different types of ETFs out there. One type of an ETF is an index fund and that just looks to track an index effectively. And you can buy them on the platforms, whatever your platform that you might be using already, or one of the platforms I mentioned, and there's even more out there. There's also apps, there's a, the three that I know of is Raise, which used to be called Acorns. Now there's Comsec Pocket and there's Spaceship, I believe. And they all are different. And maybe that's worth a podcast in the future, what the differences are. But they effectively, at the end of the day, invest into exchange traded funds, so ETFs, through their actual, through their actual platform. But what I meant before by saying not all ETFs are index funds is because you can get ETFs that invest in, I don't know, things like commodities, for example, like oil or silver or gold or real estate. So they're, they're different and some of them are actively managed or they're trying to look at niche markets, not niche, but maybe specific markets. Like you can get an ETF that only looks at robotics companies or only looks at healthcare companies. And so they're different to an index fund, which is just tracking an entire index and it doesn't, doesn't really discriminate based on what's in that index. It just looks to track it. I hold two ETFs myself. So the first one I have is VAS, VAS, so that's Vanguard Australian Shares Index ETF. That looks to track the return of the ASX 300. It has a really low management fee, so 0.1%, which is extremely low, especially compared to other funds and managed funds. The other one I hold is NDQ, which is a beta shares NASDAQ 100 ETF. So that tracks, as you can imagine, the NASDAQ 100 index, which... I usually reference at the very top of the show on my podcast. So why these two? I guess they're both different. So one's looking at the Australian market. One is looking at the specifically the NASDAQ exchange on the US, which is predominantly heavy in some of those big tech companies like an Apple and Microsoft and Google, Amazon, Tesla's in there, for example. I, I like to hold both because it gives you a bit of a mix because some of those kind of industries, especially the tech they're probably a little bit, a little bit under underrepresented in the Australian market. The Australian market's very, very heavy on 
on banks and, and resource stocks like mining stocks. A good little resource just to research ETFs is ETF Watch. So that's just an Australian website. They, they make it easy to break down all the various ETFs out there and what they do and what fees they charge. So that, that's one resource I recommend to you in terms of maybe searching for the ETF that's, that's right. If you're into sustainability or ethical funds, you can find info on, on those through ETF Watch. I know BetaShares offers both a global sustainability fund and a, an Australian sustainability fund. I haven't looked at either of these, so um, don't take this as advice, but I mean, my gut would lean towards the global one just to get some exposure uh, outside of Australia because for, for the most part, we, we have enough exposure, exposure in Australia, especially through our own super. Yeah, so hopefully that clears it up. Uh, maybe use some of those resources I mentioned to, to think about which ETF you'd like. If based on your time frame, I'd, I'd be... I'd be leaning towards an index fund or, or something broad, you know, like something that tracks like the, the Australian market or the US market. And I think you, you'll be fine if it's over a, a time period that's as long as what, what you mentioned. Cool. So that is that is it for this week. Thank you very much for the question on the end. That's, that's my second question so far. So hopefully it provides some clarity and good luck with your investing. Enjoy the long weekend. Guys, my name is Dion. This is the Market Pulse podcast and have a great shortened week.